Welcome to the Attractions Group Podcast. I'm Don Helbig, alongside everyone's favorite curmudgeon, Ryan mm-hmm. Sir. Uh, be sure to follow us on Twitter. Uh, that's the Attractions Group underscore GRP. You can also follow us on YouTube by searching for the Attractions Group Podcast and listen on your favorite podcast apps. Well, Ryan, what do we got going on today? How should today? I know? I'm just an old curmudgeon. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so big show today. We've had a couple of big ones in a row. Um, uh, we got a friend of the show, Chris Roberry, who uh, you might remember that we interviewed during IAPA, uh, you, you know, with Ride Entertainment, but he's not here to talk about Ride Entertainment today. We're here to talk about, uh, you know, a subject matter that's very near and dear to him, which is the National Roller Coaster Museum and Archives. So, what a cool subject, you know, we, we got to hit on that a little bit. This is something I've been hearing about for a decade or more now, but Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you all for having us. I uh, really appreciate it. Great to see everyone in their festive Aloha. Yeah. Gear. I want to point out that Chris is only the second guest that we've had that wore the dress code. The first one being Jeff Pike, but uh, Hawaiian shirts are required for all guests, even though nobody adheres to the dress code. White tie affair here. <laughs> Definitely. All right, Chris, to get things started, what is the National Roller Coaster Museum and Archives? It is a 20,000 square foot facility where we store and preserve some of the most historic ride vehicles out there, uh, tons of blueprints, uh, as well as other cool artifacts there out in Plainview, Texas, which is literally right next door to Larson International. So where you're making all your, your loops and your flying scooter rides. The museum is right next door to that. And it's grown from this small little building that was just housing some archive material all the way up to, like I said, now 20,000 square feet of just space where we've got every single vehicle imaginable. We have about, I think, 75 vehicles total now, as well as hundreds of other artifacts and blueprints, some of which we haven't even had a chance to even get through yet. Well, that's really cool. I mean, you mentioned that it's in in Plainview, Texas, um, and it's... Uh, so I understand that there was some sort of relationship with Larson that brought the museum to that particular location. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. So Larson International and uh, the Novotnys, who own the company, are uh, very big proponents about history and about preservation. And so they were incredibly gracious to donate the extra land to the museum. So the museum actually owns the land it sits on, uh, as opposed to, say, going out and trying to find somewhere where you'd have to lease it and then the lease comes up every year. And then if they don't like the lease and they kick the museum out, then you have to find another place to move all this, you know, history. So it's in a great secure spot and it's going to allow the museum to do what it needs to do to be open to the public, uh, as opposed to sort of hurrying things through and just saying, okay, it's open. And then you get out there and you're like, this is it. Like you want to do it right. Now, Chris, when a lot of our listeners, they think of Texas, you know, they they think Houston, Dallas, San Antonio. Where's Plainview in relation to those cities? Nowhere near it. (laughs) It's it's in uh, West Texas. So if you have ever been to Amarillo or you've ever been to Lubbock, which is home of Texas Tech, then Plainview is right in between both of those. So it's about a 40-minute drive north of Lubbock and about an hour, hour and a half drive south out of Amarillo, but it's right out there on the newly minted highway to, or interstate, excuse me, 27. Awesome. Okay. So, um, you know, I've been hearing about the museum for a long time. Uh, when do you guys consider the museum to be, to have been founded? 
So the museum was founded in 2009, and we've been slowly working towards getting the museum up and running ever since. And again, like I said, it's been those real slow, but uh, methodical building out the facility to the point now that we've got those 20,000 square feet of storage and uh, historical space available to us. All right, Chris, who are some of the board members uh, that would uh, be part of the museum and how do they get those positions? <laughs> well, you've got to have a passion for it, obviously, and you've got to be you know, part of the industry in some way, shape or form. Uh, but our board members include, there we go, Ed Hiller, who is the CEO of Ride Entertainment and also my boss. Hi, Ed. <laughs> how are you? Uh, Carol Sanderson, who a lot of folks know from uh, ACE years ago. She was actually the president of ACE from 2002 to 2006. Uh, Hunter Novotny, who is now our treasurer. Chris Gray works at Skyline Attractions. Gary Slade of Amusement Today is our past chair. Jeff Novotny, who is the current chair, who also owns Larson International. Robert Ulrich, who is our rep from American Coaster Enthusiast and, of course, an ACE past president. Uh, the great Pete Owens, who is from Dollywood, who is the head of our marketing. Uh, Richard Munch, an original founding ACE member, as well as our historian. And then Tom Sheehan, who is our general counsel. And Walt Bowser from Bynum Painting. So we got a lot of eclectic, different folks from around the industry, but they all share and contribute their specialty to helping make the facility be a success. Well, you know, it's funny because, uh, you know, one of the questions that I often ask our, I ask our guests, especially on like the journalism side of things is if you were going to have a Mount Rushmore, what are the four heads you'd put on it? But as far as, uh, you know, roller coaster history and enthusiasm and stuff, uh, I think you just named the 10 head Mount Rushmore right there. Uh, I recognize all of them. I, I remember when Carol was the president of ACE and Gary Slade and, you know, all those, all those names absolutely ring a bell at the least. So that's, that's pretty cool. Um, so, you know, if, if I were driving down the road in Plainview and, um, you know, stop by Larson and tried to settle the debate of whether or not a Larson Looper is a roller coaster or not, which is a discussion for a whole different oh, day. Oh, goodness, please don't. Uh, yes. But <laughs> and I saw the National Roller Coaster Museum and Archives. I would be like a kid in a candy store. So would Don. But to the average person, how would you explain to them that it's important to have a museum dedicated to roller coasters and, and amusement and things of that sort? That's a great question. You know, the, the really important thing to remember is that it's the attractions industry is art you can ride. You think, for example, of carousels. Those are incredible artistic pieces, the ones that were carved by hand and painted by hand and have to be repainted every single year. I know, for example, Kings Island takes masterful care of their carousel. Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk comes to mind as well as one that shuts down their carousel for every year just so they can go in and restore it and get ready for the 11 other months of abuse that it's going to get. But again, that's really important to them. And it's it really is artwork. And I would argue that these attractions are part of history. You know, Americans invented the roller coaster in the 1800s at Coney Island with the LA Thompson Scenic Railway. So we should be proud of that history and we should be excited about it. So why not be able to share that excitement with others who might just think, oh, it's just a ride. Well, for some people it is a ride, but think about how many historic roller coasters are still out there. I hate to keep going back to, to Kings Island, but the beast, incredible historic attraction that's there and you can still ride it. Uh, the Santa Cruz uh, Giant Dipper, going to be a hundred years old next year. Not many things you can say that are a hundred years old that are still just as good as the day they opened and can match 
the same level of thrill that today's rides have. And yet here we are. So for us, at least for me, it's about that connection to the past because I'm a big history buff and being able to experience those same things that our grandparents experienced and possibly our great grandparents, depending on how old the artifact actually is. And even if you didn't get to experience it personally, you still get a experience by being able to see what was going on back in the day. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of relate it to, you know, there's different interests that people have and, you know, like my wife, she's very much into all those like crime shows and things like that. So we go to Tennessee, she wants to see the crime museum. So it's (laughs) the same kind of thing to me where people that have an interest and a passion in the amusement industry have an opportunity now uh, to see some of these, these great, great rides from the past. And that brings me up to my next question for you, Chris, is what are some of the more notable um, items that you have right now on property there in the museum? Goodness. How much time do we have? All night. (laughs) Oh, then we're going (laughs) to use a lot. So uh, I, I think you can't really start that conversation with, talking about the the items that have come from Cedar Point. You know, you've got your Wildcat car. In fact, you actually have three of them. You've got uh, the lead car from Mantis, which is just a beast. You don't realize how big they are until you get right up next to them. Uh, you just sort of see that sort of front top half of them, but there's a whole second bit that you don't realize is actually there. Uh, you've got the uh, Avalanche Run slash Disaster Transport. Not only the bobsled, but also a section of the track. It is our heaviest artifact to date, although that's going to be very closely uh, competed for here very soon. Uh, We recently received uh, vehicles from Knott's Berry Farm, the front and back car from Montezuma's Revenge, as well as the top of the loop from the ride. So that will be a very fun Mm. display to be able to put up here at some point. And the probably the most famous resident we have right now would be the Matterhorn bobsled cars from Disneyland. And we know that, you know, Disney doesn't necessarily like to have their vehicles out in different places because it's just usually in the Disney parks and that's all you ever see them in. So we were very gracious and very thankful to the park for being willing to donate that to us and uh, be able to show it off to so many other people. It's one of the ones that definitely gets everyone really excited when they see it. Well, that's really cool. Um, So, you know, you mentioned a bunch of different items that you have there. Um, is the museum open to the public? So is it open? Not yet. We're working on it. <laughs> I know a lot of people always ask this question and I'm so glad that you asked mm. it for us. Uh, the museum is still under construction. So it'd be akin to trying to open a roller coaster without a brake run. You really can't do it. So we want to make sure that it is perfect before we just say, yes, let's open it up to the public. However, That does not mean that you cannot come out and visit the museum. We have uh, several opportunities coming up where you can come out as an open house, uh, whether it's with the American Coaster Enthusiasts or others that can uh, come out and enjoy the museum and see it in its current state. It is not finished. However, it is still a very visceral experience because for many people, you go out there and you can see a car that you sat in. And now it's sitting here in this museum in Plainview, Texas. It's kind of crazy to think, but every time I go out there to to do some work, you're just reminded of, you know, that I could have sat in that car at uh, the Matterhorn at Disneyland, or I sat in 
you know, row number one, seat number one on Mantis at Cedar Point. You remember that. And that's a really cool connection to have, especially if it was your favorite ride or a ride that you never got the opportunity to experience. I know a lot of folks, whenever we post the photos of Volcano from King's Dominion, that gets a very big reaction because I know that was a ride that was very beloved and uh, could have been a challenge sometimes mm -hmm. to get on, but definitely was an experience when you got the opportunity. Now, Chris, you just mentioned, you know, like the opportunity to sit in a car or something like that. Understand there's a room there that is kind of like a bar. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Oh, you mean the special events area? Yes. I we, do mean the special <laughs> events area, yes. Colloquially, we call it the buzz bar, which I think is it's just the perfect name, let's be honest. Uh, it has so many good monikers to it. It is made of so much ride material. I think that's what makes it so cool is that we're, we're at the forefront of upcycling and recycling material. The bar itself is made of wood and steel salvaged from Mean Streak at Cedar Point. And the top of the bar has an epoxy layer on it and they've embedded pieces of the ride. So there's a chain bit, there's some wheels, et cetera, inside the actual epoxy. When you belly up and sit at the bar, you're sitting on a roller coaster wheel, an authentic RMC road wheel that was graciously donated to us by Macklin, who manufactures that wheel. And they placed an extra epoxy on top of it so it's nice and smooth to sit down on. And let me tell you, those things are heavy uh, and they still spin. So you can just go around and, you know, if you wanted to, woo, woo, you could just do that if you wanted to. I don't recommend it because it doesn't stop spinning. <laughs> it's got a lot of momentum to it. Uh, but we also have all sorts of different uh, brake handles from old school manual braking systems along the wall, as well as different wooden selections from different rides. So you can see, here's what Epay looks like. Here's what Southern Yellow Pine looks like. Here's what Douglas Fir would look like from a ride. And it's all got the notations as to where they're from. So you're still learning something while, you know, you're enjoying a tasty beverage every now and then. That's a room I want to check out uh, for sure. Yeah. It's definitely, it's a trip to say the least. And it's a great way to finish after you've done a lot of, oh, uh, for me, a lot of uh, washing the vehicles, getting them ready for photography. That's a nice way to end the day to say the least. Yeah. I know the local Kiwanis Club has used it as well. And they I think it. that you should have like a beer flight called the lap bar. So your uh so <laughs> so your your mantra can be uh walk in with a lap bar, walk out with a buzz bar. <laughs> 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 that was way funnier and made well, way that, more sense in my head when I came up with Was it? Okay. <laughs> I, I will say though, it's uh you can I guess at what point if you have to cut somebody off, do you call it a block break? You're welcome. No, it's the e-stop. Yeah. Oh, it's the e-stop. <laughs> there it is. That's it. See? Oh, yeah. I mean, I could be in probably marketing spend all. all day coming up with nomenclature for uh, just roller coaster <laughs> innuendo and stuff. Um, so, you know, you talked about how not only, um, you know, there's a bunch of roller coaster cars and track and stuff, but there's also uh, things like blueprints and plans and probably marketing materials and stuff. Um, you mentioned that there's like a tie to the past. Uh, associated with this stuff. Um, how do you see like uh, the archives and things like that uh, playing into like an understanding of the past? Um, as far as like it, when there's a roller coaster car, um, 
you know, you, you, you hit the nail on the head when you said like, you know, I rode Mantis before they got, before it got squashed. Um, so I could probably relate to it in terms of like, uh, you know, I probably rode on this car or whatever. Um, but when it comes to blueprints and stuff like that, um, wh- where do you see the connection to the public when, with that? Do you think that that's a walk down memory lane or do you think that's more of a geeky roller coaster thing where people like you, me and Don would be interested? I, I certainly think that that's a, an aspect of it that, you know, for example, you, you know, yourself, Don and I would, would definitely be interested in seeing the original Schwarzkopf blueprints and certainly scholars would be interested in seeing them. If there was any sort of research project or anything else going on like that, where, you know, I needed to to get some additional information or something like to that effect. But, you know, I, I think more than anything, it's just having it there just to preserve it. Is, is the biggest and most important thing that knowing that it's there and that it's safe, that it's in a climate controlled facility makes all the difference because it really is part of our history. Great example, in fact, of how it was even used was when we were building out the track for the super duper looper display, which is an, about 15 feet off the ground. And we didn't have any track that came with it. Hershey Park graciously donated an entire Giovanola train from super duper looper and completely rehabbed it, cleaned it up, repainted it. It looks brand new. It's still fully functional. I know because I kept pushing in the uh, restraint unlocking mechanism for the documentary, uh, Schwarzkopf documentary uh, uh, trailer just to see if it would work. And it turned out it actually had a pretty good effect to it. But we couldn't figure out, okay, well, how are we going to mount this? And we all we had to do was just go into the archive room, find the Schwarzkopf track design in a blueprint, and Hunter Novotny at Larson was able to create that track at Larson, paint it, and mount it perfectly. So it's the exact same dimension as a Schwarzkopf track. Very, very cool. That, that to me, is, is the cool thing, is that we can always be that facility that, uh, I'm trying to find the right word for this, uh, make it available to anyone if you would ever need it. Yeah. Yeah, Chris, um, when you get to the point that it is open to the public, down the road here how do you envision it taking place when when somebody would come in would it be like a self-guided tour would you have tour guides that would take people around and explain the different things you know what what's the vision for that that's a great question i couldn't speak exactly as to whether or not it'll be self-guided or will it be you know tour guided i will say from the concepts and other items that we've seen uh, from the museum and from the people that are designing it it's going to tell a story. So it's a storyline. It's very much like a theme park ride. So you walk in and the first thing you're going to learn is here's, you know, how the first roller coaster started. Here's our oldest artifact from 1918 that we have, uh, the Jackrabbit uh, train. And as you go along this path, you're going to keep learning more and more about the history of the parks, the history of rides. And eventually it's going to empty you out into the big, you know, Mark Moore Memorial wing which has all these vehicles on display. You know, one of the things that has been inspiring to us is the Harley Davidson museum, the way that they've displayed their vehicles. That's really cool to see. And we would love to be able to use that as a template so that others can experience that as well. If you ever had a chance to check it out, it's in Milwaukee, I believe it is really cool. Yeah, that is really cool. Now, uh, before we went on the air, you started talking about how you were affiliated with like the uh, the Aerodynamics documentary, as well as the the Schwarzkopf one, and so on. 
Um, I didn't know that. That's really cool. Um, so just plug it real quick. Uh, what, what, what's it titled on YouTube? That's where I found it. Well, just, just search legacy of arrow or legacy of arrow developments. And you know, my, my partners on that project, Nicholas Laskowicz, Robert Engel, and so many others, Andrew Hansis, Barbara Lawson, my goodness, we, it was a great project to work on. It took about a year and a half, should have taken two years. <laughs> we really compressed it down. Uh, and it was just a, a loads of fun. And it, it grew out of the idea of doing a 30 minute special. Uh, for our old Lost Parks in Northern California TV show, which is also still on YouTube, by the way, uh, for free. And if you're a history buff, check it out. You can see all the cool things that used to be in the San Francisco Bay Area. That's really cool. uh, we only got to six, but there were about 40 of them total. So we thought we were going to be doing the show for quite a while. Uh, <laughs> but that, yeah, that, that was what it came out of. Is that we thought we'd do a 30-minute special on Arrow. And then all of a sudden, we started writing the script and realizing this is going to take way longer than 30 minutes. And... Turns out it took about an hour and a half and it was absolutely worth uh, it. I agree. I, so, I mean, I, I found yeah, that independent point. of this conversation. Uh, it's a couple years old now. Cause I remember I watched it uh, released in early 2016. Yeah, so uh, I tell you what, I'll, I'll, I'll find it and I'll put it in the, the description of both the podcast and the, uh, the YouTube. So people can watch that. Cause that's really cool. It's got like one and a half million views now. Just about one and a half million oh, that's views. Incredible. Yep. We, we're about that. You know, <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's not about the the number of views. I can't stress this enough to you know the the folks that are listening who are maybe content creators or you know theme park fans that want to get into making content. It's not about the amount of views; it's about the quality of Agreed. content. That's what it always comes down to. Yeah, and absolutely, the yeah. Schwartzkopf one is that out or is that something you're still working on? <laughs> no, my friend, we're not. <laughs> no, we've just started on that, but we're trying. To, our our goal is to get it out by IAPA in 2024, which will celebrate Schwarzkopf's 100th birthday, if he were still around. Awesome. It's a good way to time it out. I thought so, yeah. Yeah, Chris, let me ask you about, you know, we talked about some of the items that have been donated, and but say you're a park, you're retiring mm -hmm. a ride. Um, how would they go about donating a piece of a, of a ride that's been around for a long time to the museum? Is there a certain person they'd have to reach out to, or, you know, what do they do? You know, the best thing to do is just to reach out to us via the the form on our uh, our website and just say, hey, I'm from such and such. We're thinking about potentially, you know, coming out and, and taking out this attraction. Would you all be interested in potentially receiving a donation for it? And of course, the answer is going to be yes. It's just a matter of uh, coordinating the shipping to make sure that it can get out there. I will say uh, shipping is very expensive and uh, the museum is really focused right now on building out the interior of the facility. That's the biggest thing right now. But if a park is interested in donating something, by all means, reach out to us, either via our socials, via our website. We are always happy to entertain uh, interesting offers of uh, any types of donations. You know, I cannot <laughs> emphasize how crazy it was this when somebody found the Maverick Heartline roll from Cedar Point, and it was sitting in a field somewhere in your general area. And so <laughs> our my phone blew up from people asking, hey, is the Lord Coaster Museum going to get this? You guys are going to get this, right? We don't know. <laughs> we, we've, we've made some inquiries and that's as far as things have gone. So, you know, as I always like to say on social, stay tuned. You never know what's going to happen. But also, please don't trespass on the land. You don't own it. And we really don't want to see it get trashed because it's becoming too much of a hassle because people keep 
trespassing to take a photo of. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought of you guys when I heard about that. My understanding is that essentially um, somebody works at whatever place this is in some general area, um, and they took pictures that's been there for years, since 2007-ish, and um, they took pictures of it and put it on Reddit and said, oh, here's an interesting fact. There's pieces of roller coaster track that sits behind my building. And that's when it exploded. But on one hand, mm -hmm. I that's that's a lot of steel, like for scrap. But on the other hand, it's sitting in a field. They they either don't intend to or didn't know they had it or don't there's it's unclear as to who owns it, you know. So it's Oh, they're they're clear, they are very clear about what they want to do with it and who owns it. And that's that part of the okay. holdup. So uh, as as opposed to what they want to do. But they they have an idea of what they want to do, but you know, you know, plans can change. So we're, they're not in any rush and you know, neither are we, we certainly don't want to have to, you know, grab something out there really quickly and rush it. And then just have it sit there for a long time in you know, a different field in plain view, as opposed to a, you know, a current field in a state near you. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's, uh, but, but you, you make an interesting point as far as, uh, you know, things like that, which are kind of lost because, uh, that's such a minor part of roller coaster history, but it's such an interesting part. No human being, to my understanding, ever rode that track. But I believe they some did, and that's when they said this, this may not work out as as they had intended. And I should clarify, we're not upset by any means that people started tagging us and saying, "Hey, you know, is the museum going to get this?" In fact, I took that as a badge of honor because that tells me that people are interested in making sure that the the facility is is there and that the facility continues to grow well as it and, and so i was really excited to see that but also it was it was hundreds of of retweets and mentions and I was well like, yeah now they know you're awesome. out there you know? You know <laughs> but but you know it's exactly. uh, i i see it this way with that it's uh you know piece of roller coaster history and everyone in their mind the, it clicks oh national roller coaster museum you know they, they didn't necessarily exactly. reach out to you know, Cedar Point saying, put this in your museum or whatever. They they thought of you, you know, be, and. Well, I, I suspect that, that Mr. Clark probably I, got I'm sure a, he a couple heard mentions something about well. it. At some <laughs> point. So Don't sure. get me wrong. But, but I'm saying. Um, Hi, Tony. How's it going? Hope your microphone's working now. <laughs> uh, Tony can hear you loud and clear, I'm sure. Um, uh, so <laughs> He couldn't at no coaster, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> <laughs> a, um, so are there any, um, a, obviously, you know, the Heartline role is, that's a very interesting story, but are there any other artifacts that you've pursued that you haven't been able to get that you can think of? Uh, well, goodness. Yeah, I think the Conneaut Blue Streak, that would have been a nice uh, addition. I'm glad that at least a local museum was able to preserve one or two of those cars. So that was that was good, but of course, you know, that's, that's a tough one for, I think all of, you know, the roller coaster community to, to see is that see a historic ride like that, get, get torn down in the way it did. Uh, it's unfortunate, but you know, we were reminded of the fact that this is a business and that's where the museum can step in and be that, you know, shining night and saying, yes, you may not be able to ride this anymore, but at least we have a piece of it still here. So it'll live on forever. Absolutely. Uh, trying to think of any ones that were so close that we just couldn't get or yeah the one that comes to mind that we that's a success story it was our longest trip ever and that was uh, jeff novotny who splits his time between lubbock texas and uh north idaho that's where his other house is he drove 
from North Idaho to Flint, Michigan to pick up the Rocky Springs uh, scenic railway car that we have, which is the oldest one that we've got, the Jackrabbit car. And he, they found it in a garage in Flint, Michigan, randomly. So Jeff drove all the way from North Idaho to pick it up and then drove all the way from Flint, Michigan down to Plainview to drop it off. So I think it was something like 1,500 miles one way. Drove straight through, I'm guessing. Pretty close <laughs> to him and his. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. That's, uh, <laughs> I couldn't fathom that. I'm getting too old, as Don mentioned at the top of the show, for these long road trips. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Chris, how often do you um, stop by the museum? And is there one particular thing in there that is your favorite? Oh man, that's, that's like a Sophie's choice, Don. Thanks a lot. Uh, yes, I, I do head out to the museum probably two, three times a year. You know, whenever we get new acquisitions, I like to go out there, clean them up, detail them, and then uh, photograph them. So they look nice and pretty. Uh, in terms of the one that I'm always looking forward to seeing, boy, it always changes because every now and then you get something new, right? Uh, for me, I think it's the Matterhorn cars. I really do because you know, I remember being in there. I remember just that, that fun seating as Bob Gurr called it the date night seating. When we did the documentary uh, and the story just behind that ride, that it was by no means going to be a success by any stretch of the imagination. And yet, despite its flaws, it's a legendary attraction and it is now the world's first tubular steel roller coaster. And to have that vehicle there is really, really special especially knowing the story behind it and the people behind it. Yeah, that really adds to it when you know the story behind a lot of these things. Yeah, definitely. From just, oh, it's just another roller coaster car. Like, well, yes, but this car was such and such for so-and-so. And then when you have been able to experience it for yourself, it adds that that extra bit of specialty to it. I will say one of our uh, our good friends out here the Quirky Coaster Couple. Great Facebook page if you get a chance. Check them out. They're based in San Antonio, but they came out to the museum for our West Texas Roundup event two years ago for the first time. And it was a very emotional experience for them because, again, here's your childhood. Here's attractions that you remember, and here they are forever preserved. Thought they were gone forever. There's a whole section of the Texas Cyclone track that is sitting 20 feet in the air that we, they were literally cut out with chainsaws the moment that last train went through the station. They, the ride shut down, the power was cut off, and they took uh, chainsaws to it and moved out this 20-foot section of track. So there's a full section of it. And it's one of the last remaining pieces of Astral World that's out there. Hmm. Very morbid way of thinking about it, but that's, uh, that's very true. I, I always thought that it was an interesting way to keep parks alive. Uh, for example, like when Geauga Lake, well, Astro was a good example, but a lot of these parks, when they're part of bigger chains, the rides get dispersed. So they kind of have a second life uh, in that instance. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so you, you, you both work and you hobby in the theme park industry, um, but you've got an affinity for history. So, and this is going to sound like the strangest question, but I think you'll understand my question. What's the, the biggest theme park historical character that you've met in person where it was all, you were like starstruck to meet him. 
Uh, See, that's a tough one because I've, I've, I've met Dana Morgan before. He's a lovely gentleman and his wife, Paula, she's incredible and she's hilarious. I, I would have to say Bob Gurr. You know, Bob was in Mountain View, coincidentally, for a, a presentation and with the Historic Society. And we just got to sit down and talk with Bob for about an hour about just everything Arrow. And this meeting was being held two doors down from the old Arrow factory, which is still there in Mountain View. And man, that was really special because that's a connection to the entire theme park industry from its birth. That was really a really special moment for us. Mm. Now, of course, I would also be remiss if I said, if I, you know, every time that I go to uh, Mason and get to meet Dawn, that, of course, is absolutely the, the most important person that, that I've ever met in the industry. Oh, hi, Dawn. How's it well, going? Well, I mean, I, I, I just feel like Dawn. that if you were, if you were in the movie Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and you had to go back in time and pick up theme park historical characters and Dawn was in that mix... I don't think you'd get the A plus and you'd end up going to military school. I'm just saying. Well, I'd say so. Don is a significant part of the the history of this industry. I mean, without Don, would the racer have been as successful because of Don's marathon riding? I don't know. You you, you just cemented me as being old when you say part oh, of well, the history. Oh, well, no, that's not first of all. No, just, come on. <laughs> Whenever somebody says history, you, you feel the word old. Don't you uh, agree, well, Ryan? Yeah, I completely agree. Or it's like, You've got a history of being late to work. The, the history has a bad connotation, and that word should be canceled. It, it does. Absolutely. It does. It does. No, but I, I appreciate your kind words there, Chris. Well, of I course. Mean, and it's, it, it's, certainly, yeah. I mean it, too. I'm not just being facetious, you know, completely facetious. But it, it's it's true. Is it, This industry is built on characters, and it's built on characters in a positive way. So you've got your folks like your Dons out there. You've got people like uh, Bob Gurr, who, you know, they were winging this stuff mm-hmm. back in the day trying to figure this whole thing out and then had to adapt as they went. You know, you've got Tony Baxter's who used to go in the magic shops and then eventually went to Walt Disney Imagineering. How great is that? It's, it really is cool to see the progression and to see all the different people that are out there. You've got your Alan Shilkes, you've got your Fred Grubbs, you've got your Tom Rebbies. I mean, just all these different people that have made this industry. So there's always people and stories behind every single one of those ride vehicles. That to me is the coolest. Yeah. I mean, you hit the nail on the head because, um, it's, it's never a ride. It's never, it's never a building that pivots the industry. It's always the people that imagine the ride, the people that built the building, the people that performed in the show, the people that, um, well, I mean, like, well, you, you know, to Don's point of riding the racer tens of thousands of times or whatever he was doing during the 90s, um, it, it's, uh, you know, when you think about it, it's it's a dude who rode a ride a bunch of times. But, you know, Kings Island was on the map. It was on Good Morning America and stuff because of that. You know, and then we don't know what the park would look like today if they didn't have that at the time, because it may not have taken off in the way that it did. And it could have been more of a low scale version of itself. Like Kings Island could have been basically to the same scale as Kings Dominion, where it's, uh, you know, maybe something else in the market could have come up and competed with it. But since they got all this coverage and stuff, it was, you know, no pun intended, but it was considered a beast in the region. You know, no one could touch it. Oh, that's a good, that's a great pun intended, actually. I, I, I just, I, I um, had to pause myself because those words 
came into my head and I really did not intend a pun, but I don't like regret it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chris, you got Ryan and I very excited about the museum. When can we come visit? Uh, I don't know. So the good news is uh, that we're planning an event this year. The question is, we're trying to figure out exactly when it's going to be. Uh, traditionally, ACE would have the West Texas Roundup every other year. This is a West Texas Roundup year, but unfortunately we lost Joyland Park this year, which was a very cute family-owned amusement park in Lubbock, Texas. So we're still working with Wonderland, which is located in Amarillo, as well as other facilities to see what type of event we could potentially have. So stay tuned to all of our socials at Roller Coaster Museum and Ace South Central. And as soon as we know something, we will absolutely blast it out so that people can come out and visit. Because we know everyone wants to come out and visit. And we certainly want to be able to open our doors to everyone as soon as we can. Do you have any uh, internally, like any projection of when you think it might be open to the public or uh, like a vagary two years, three years and anything like that? Or is it just kind of like when it's done, it's done. Cause I understand a lot of this is probably done with volunteer work and done at the pace that the free time allows, you know, 100% of all of this is done with volunteer hours and volunteer time and based completely on donations. So we're kind of at the, at the mercy of that. So there's no, we don't have an exact date, because the last time that we did give a date, COVID. So that didn't really help out very much, as you can imagine. Uh, it was a bit beneficial actually to us because Larson didn't have to let go of their workers temporarily. They just kept paying them to finish building out the exterior of the museum. So again, a massive shout out to our friends at Larson. Every time you see a Larson super loop, and there's people that of course deride them and all that, those super loops are helping to preserve history. So just a new appreciation for them the next time you see them. In a Seems park. like good people. They, You know, everybody in West Texas is good people. It, it really is. It's a cool area. It's got delicious Tex-Mex. Oh, my goodness. And it could snow and it can be 100 degrees outside sometimes right. in the same week. <laughs> well, we feel your pain here in uh, the Cincinnati region because today, today I, I went to the gym in shorts and a T-shirt. Uh, three days ago, it was bundle up weather. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, you know, when, when you talk about uh, the museum, the long-term goals are for it to open and stuff. Um, how long have you guys been building this particular location? Like, I remember back quite a while ago. I mean, you mentioned that it was founded in 2009. Is that correct? Okay. So, That's correct. Yes. This board was funded so, in 2009. So I remember hearing about it before that. So obviously it was some sort of, you know, conceptualized before that because they were taking donations. I I mean, my mind could be in the wrong place, but when was this building, uh, like the, the site chosen for it and construction of the actual museum? Like when did that start? That started in 2009. Once the, the board was, you know, set as it is now, you know, we've been talking about this museum for, you know, decades, it seems like, because we have been, you know, and, and ACE was looking to find a facility and find a place where they could build this museum. And it just, it just didn't work out. You know, it, it's tough to be able to do when you've got all these different collections that need to come together and they would have to come together at one moment. So the way that the museum has been built now is that they can come as they come in. 
and it's okay. We know they're safe. We know they're preserved. So we can open when we're ready. That's a great luxury to have. And that means you're going to be able to put the best possible product on the field, right? That is certainly the uh, the case. My condolences to your Bengals. That was a tough game. I'm sorry. Don't go there. <laughs> you had to bring it up. I was, I was hey, just. Hey, I'm a 49ers fan. So trust me, it was a lot worse for us. Yeah, but just getting over it. And then you have to, to bring oh, that sorry. back up again. But that's. Well, okay. I mean, you know, it's. We just won't date the podcast. That's all. <laughs> It just yeah, happened. Well, <laughs> there's always yeah, next that's year. right. It's, it's always, always for many best. years as a as a Bengal fan. There's always next year. <laughs> but uh, Chris, um, you know, you have the museum. So uh, what about merchandise? Any merchandise for the museum available? Oh, merchandise! Yes, this is my favorite thing to talk about. <laughs> we uh, one of the goals when I I came on as a volunteer was to get the museum out there a little bit more because we know that we're we're in a you know out there in West Texas and it can be difficult to get to. It's not like you're in New York City or Orlando. So uh, we started a merchandise line and you can actually check out all the different merchandise at rollercoastermuseum.org slash store, or just go to rollercoastermuseum.org and click around until you Link find in the description. Store. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> yes. Thank you. I appreciate that. And the cool part about that is that the artwork that we made is custom artwork made just for the museum by our friends at Lantern Press, which are based in Seattle. And they do a lot of other theme parks and other travel things. But the thing that really got me, got my attention was they have a style that looks like the Works Progress Administration. So it looks like a Disneyland travel poster. Like that's, that was the, the look that we went for. And they, gosh, they absolutely nailed it. So we were really excited to put that on anything, <laughs> anything and everything, uh, as well as just our logo merchandise. And we even have, uh, through a exclusive agreement with our friend Vilan Schwarzkopf, who is Anton's son, uh, Schwarzkopf 3D printed logos. So if you want to put a little black Schwarzkopf logo on something, you certainly can. Or if you want to put a big one on something, we can do that as well. And those are printed right at Larson. So it's on the exact same printer that is printing out new ride parts for attractions that are over a hundred years old in some cases. Very, very cool. Um, so, uh, you know, it, to, you know, to kick this can around, we we have the Ace documentary, and then you're working on the Schwarzkopf one. Are there any other documentaries that are on the horizon, or any ideas that you want to just throw out there? That, you know, um, no, because Nicholas and Robert would probably murder me if I said, "Oh, hey, we're doing another film, boys." Uh, there's always the possibility of doing another film, but I think between doing the history of Ace documentary and the legacy of Anton Schwarzkopf. I think we're good for the next couple of years and you know, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> and I think so is the team uh, between all that, a full-time job and uh, volunteering at the museum. Yeah. We're, we're a little too busy. You need a now, secretary. So we're we're good. Me. I need a, a lot of things. <laughs> yes, but that's not <laughs> a, I don't have a secretary a slew of assistance. <laughs> Well, Chris, how much time would you say you are putting in? You know, you talk about volunteer uh, work, but how much time during the week are you doing, whether it's, you know, maybe putting something on social media or uh, working on your documentaries? Uh, how much goes into that? Uh, a lot. <laughs> I you forget just how much I used to have free time and now I don't anymore. It's amazing how it just kind of disappears like that. I, you know, I'd say I probably put in about, 10 hours worth of time, which doesn't sound like a lot, but then, you know, you're working full time and getting other stuff done as well. And just general life as well. So 
it, it takes about 10 to 15 hours a week, whether that's just scheduling social, talking to people on social, getting stuff planned out, fulfilling merchandise orders, all that goes through here. So it, it but it's worth it. it. It's definitely, I'm so excited whenever I see a new merchandise order comes in, because that means that, you know, we're, we're spreading the museum's love and people understand what we're trying to do and want to support that. So that's always a really gratifying experience. And, you know, we don't necessarily, sorry guys, I apologize. I'll start back, start over that second part there. Hang on. Yeah, you're fine. And because the museum is all volunteer, no one's getting paid. It's just there to help make the museum as good as possible. And that's a great feeling. Yeah, I completely agree. So, um, so Chris, you know, aside from riding roller coasters, selling roller coasters, preserving roller coasters and archiving roller coasters and putting off your next nervous breakdown, what else do you do in your free time? My next nervous breakdown. Oh man, you have no idea. Uh, you know, I, I love to go bike riding. It's been kind of tough lately because the ice outside has been just a little too thick to be able to do that. But my goal this year is to make it from Dallas, downtown Dallas to downtown Fort Worth via bike. I've made it to both, but I live in Arlington. So it's only halfway both times, but I know I can do it. It's just a matter of getting up there to do that. I'm also a pretty decent bowler if you ever let me out on the lanes. So kind of hard to, to fly with bowling balls. Ask me how I know how, uh, because the TSA doesn't really like them. And I don't like to check them because I know what happens to luggage when it goes under a mm. plane, because I used to work at an airport. Uh, it's terrifying. <laughs> so I'd rather not have a, you know, $150, $200 bowling ball Ooh. get destroyed by uh, a luggage well, machine. Yeah. And, well, just imagine the 20 year old kid that has to lug the bowling ball and throw it in the back of a 747. <laughs> I feel so bad. I guess it's funny because we have the uh, bowling museum right down the street here in Arlington and the PBA and uh, all the, the, the USBC, United States Bowling Congress is all headquartered, literally kitty cornered to Six Flags over Texas. And whenever there's a tournament here, you just know it because you can just hear the groans from everybody at DFW and uh, Love Field, because all of a sudden they're seeing three ball bags, which are 48 mm. pounds, just under the limit, constantly coming through. And it's like, oh no, it's another bowling tournament. Here's a couple hundred bags. <laughs> they should pay over time. Okay, so just, but um, you know, just just to, to, to round things out, um, can you tell us uh, just one more time, the uh, National Roller Coaster Museum's website as well as where to find you guys on social sure so you can find us on social media just about anywhere just search national roller coaster museum or just roller coaster museum in some cases we're on twitter facebook instagram and youtube and youtube we're actually showing some of the cool pieces from our arrow collection which was an entire palette of film film canisters vhs dvd uh pal uh i mean you name it there was a format of it from different aero content. And some of it includes really exclusive stuff. Like we have Matterhorn pre-opening POV. Wow. <laughs> which was on eight millimeter film. I think at eight frames a second. And it's, it's bad uh, because it, at one point the, um, they put on a speedometer and it says that it hits 56 miles an hour. Now the actual top speed of Matterhorn is about 24 mm -hmm. to 27. So how it hit 56, I don't know, but apparently it did. So either that thing was really out of whack or something else was going on, but that's really fun to see. Uh, 
And just visit our website is rollercoastermuseum.org. Perfect. And once again, link in the description. So Don, what's up next? Well, we'd like to have a little fun, Chris. A lot of times on uh, our our episodes, we do a pick six is what we call it, uh, kind of highlighting the different things uh, going on in the industry that week, the hot topics. But since we have you, you're from Texas, we thought the pick six this week would be a Bucky's edition. Oh, yes. I'm, I'm so down. Let's do this. All right. So six questions you answer um, and we're ready to go. So the first question is your favorite Bucky's sandwich. Favorite Bucky's sandwich. That's oh, easy. Brisket sandwich. Oh, really? Not the melt? Yep. Nope. Brisket sandwich. I go for the melt. I'm going to, I mean, the brisket's great, but the first time I tried the melt, um, you know, it just became, I mean, I have to have it every time I go there. So I won't answer the, I won't say anything just yet because there might be some other questions about it, but I found a new food item at Bucky's and you absolutely need to try it. So. Hey, we'll, keep going we'll for the extra might points be able to cover at the it. end. Um, yeah, it's funny with the. Sweet. I think I might have told the story in the podcast before, but we've got a Bucky's between here and Dollywood. So, um, you know, obviously, but between Don and I, we we stop there quite often. Um, but the first time I went, temporarily the world's largest, by the way, for now. And well, until we we still have to pass the world's largest to get to Dollywood when the Sevierville one opens, until the other one in Texas opens, which will then be the world's largest. Um, Correct. <laughs> oh, the Bucky world we live in. Um, so <laughs> first time I ever went to Bucky's, got the melt, loved it. I put it on social media. Everyone was saying, "Oh, you should try the br brisket. They've got the best brisket." So next time I went, I remember. Um, of course, I had to send Don a selfie at at Bucky's, and you know, I got the brisket, and I got out to the car, and um, and I said, "Well, I had sent him like you know a selfie there as well as the brisket sandwich," and. He texts me saying, you should have gotten the melt instead. And I ate the, I ate the brisket <laughs> and he was right. The, the melt is better than the brisket, but they're both really good. But the, the, the melt is just, you can't go wrong. Let's yeah. put it that way. You cannot go wrong with yeah, the uh, Don in your honor. I will text you the next time I'm out there and I will try the melt in your honor. Do you have one near you? Oh yeah. It's, it's Fort Worth. It's like a 30 minute drive from here. Not that I would know exactly how long it takes. All I know is that my car has enough charge to make it all the way out there electric only. Okay. <laughs> so That's now we know what kind of car right. he drives. <laughs> anyway, so, uh, yes. so question number two. Number two. Favorite Bucky's breakfast item. Ooh, this is, oh, you know what? That's easy. Uh, it's a kolache. Oh, yeah? Tell us what a kolache is. Yep, it's the kolaches. Zip it in the microwave for about 10, 15 seconds. Nice and warm. Get two of those bad boys and a Diet Dr. Pepper. Bam! Breakfast of Champions. Mm. That's how you get so much done, isn't right. it? <laughs> yeah, there's a possibility. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Question number three. And being from Texas, I'm pretty sure you're well-versed in these types of things. Your favorite Bucky's hot sauce flavor. Yeah, so about that. Um Chris is actually originally from the San Francisco Bay area. He doesn't do hot sauce and that's why he's talking in the third person. So I actually don't have a hot sauce. I'm the wussiest when it comes to heat. So I'm an adopted Texan. So I have to say pass. No, that, I, we've never had somebody pass, pass on, on a pick sauce. six. I don't know what to do. <laughs> what would, so, uh, so do you like the Bucky's barbecue sauce? 
the pumpkin's barbecue sauce is incredible and they have this whole wall of barbecue sauce which but i I like to go for just your standard regular barbecue sauce all right so uh i guess number four your favorite beef jerky flavor teriyaki choice that can't go wrong with teriyaki and bucky's that is the best road trip snack ever outside of chicken nuggets just because you can just have that bag and just not even have to take your hands off the road anything it's really great highly recommend all right question. Uh, you realize they're paying us you know but we like to pretend that they yeah, are next question yeah <laughs> someday someday yeah uh, the next question is your favorite bucky's snack item it can be a repeat if necessary. No, this this it's it's pretty obvious. It's beaver nuggets. How can you go wrong with Bucky's beaver nuggets? They're the again that snack that you know keeps you shaking for three days later. But it's oh man, they're just nothing but sugar with sugar and then throw that extra sugar on them. So yeah, beaver nuggets for sure. Yeah, you're and the one. The new one, the nuggies are even better. Yeah, the first time I had beaver nuggets was at Iapa with the bag that you get on. <laughs> yeah i had not yet been to a bucky's when you gave me that first bag of it when you were visiting the mason area and so, uh so after wait, i'm a, the one to blame well i mean no i mean not on that part um <laughs> I, to me it was just like going to wally world you know but it was open uh when i first <laughs> went there the first time but it uh you know i, I didn't know what where it that it was a big chain like that until, you know, I kind of researched where these nuggets come from. Then I saw, and then I saw there was one in, you know, nearby in Richmond, Kentucky that had opened earlier that spring. And from that point on, I was hooked. (laughs) Uh, You're welcome. And I'm sorry. (laughs) The two can be true at once, you know? So is, is, uh, Hey, it's my turn. Okay. So your favorite Bucky's non-food item, like merchandise. Ooh, well, they do switch out their t-shirts. It seems like on a bi-weekly basis, which so there's somebody out there, God bless them, that's coming up with new beaver puns to throw on a t-shirt that's relevant to the time of the year. But I'm going to have to go with, if you want the one item at Bucky's that's just legendary, it would have to be the Bucky Beaver onesie. Oh, I don't know anybody who has that. giant beaver onesie that you can wear to sleep. (laughs) That thing is insane. And I will put a a second, a little star asterisk next to the bucket of Bucky's lard that Ooh. I saw once there. It was like a 10-pound a bucket of lard, which was ironic because it was right next to the bikini, the Bucky's bikini. I don't know how that works, but okay. I mean, it just shows you who they're marketing the bikini to, I guess. I don't know. It was it really like literally lard for cooking or was it like a joke? Yeah. No, it was legitimately it was a plastic bucket of oh. lard. Did you buy it? No. <laughs> Bucky's I mean there's half that stuff I I could never be caught dead buying but then it's so delicious it's like okay that's great but no I don't need a 10 pound I meant bucket the of lard for anything. <laughs> Oh, the bikini. Oh, <laughs> no, I'm not quite into my, my swimwear. Uh, well, you better get ready because summer comes in Texas way earlier than it does here. 
yeah, don't remind <laughs> me about that. We're all complaining about the cold right now, but it's like, yeah, just give me about three more months and then everyone's going to be begging for oh, ice yeah. to come back. So a favor to me and Don's, we both have these uh, large Bucky. I think these are 32 ounce Bucky tumblers. Oh man, I'm feeling kind of left. I've got nothing here. Mm. I've got, I've got my red swing line stapler. That's all I got. Mm. All right. That's the best purchase I think I've ever made. It's this mug. I mean, it's great. It keeps your drink absolutely cold. I mean, 10 hours later, your drink is still cold. And out here, you know, that's a, a really important thing to to have is that even though you leave that thing out there in the car, yeah. it's still going to be cold. Yeah. I mean, but the ice, it stays in there. I mean, it, I mean, it's amazing. I'm writing my list down for all the things I need to get now. So I've got hot sauce down here. I got the, the beaver tumbler. Okay. I got that down. So we're good so far. And the mugs come in like five different sizes, yeah. so you, you can you can. It's gonna be hard to pick and choose. Well, which this one you I think need. is the biggest one, um, but it I'll, does fit I'll consult in the you beforehand. Uh, cup holder. So I mean, I guess you'd want the biggest one possible for the road, right? Mm, you don't need a bladder buster. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the final point. The after podcast has gone to a very weird place. This is a bonus one for you. All right, your favorite Bucky's location. Probably because it's my home Bucky's talking like a home park all of a sudden, but North Fort Worth right across from Texas Motor Speedway. Because when you ever coming down from Oklahoma, that means you're almost home and it's close enough though, that you can make a, a special trip out there without it killing you and not having to be like another two hours out of your way just to right. go to Bucky's. So I would say that one North Fort Worth with a, a, a close second, the Denton one which is almost the same distance away because they have the world's second longest car wash. By longest car wash, does it accommodate more cars or does it do more stuff or is it more spread? I've seen Bucky's extended car wash. I haven't been through a Bucky's car wash yet. I usually don't go to a car wash mid-trip. Then you have not lived. You oh have not gosh. lived. It is The answer to your questions is yes. It's about uh, 250 yards long. It's got just constant brushes, constant soap. Four different dryers, it feels like, and then free vacuums and etc. It's it's a it's religious a spa experience. for your car. It really, it really is. The longest one I think is over a football field long, and that's just outside of Houston. Wow, awesome! Well, hey, uh, you've given us some great information and some weird conversations here. Uh, we really appreciate <laughs> you being on the show. Um, I tell you what, uh, you next time you guys drop like a. a you know, a, a, a new acquisition or or whatever, if you want to come on and talk about it, we'd love to have you. Yeah. We're, we're always happy to, to share about all the exciting and fun things happening at the museum and, you know, don't be a stranger on social media. Awesome. Too. Cool. Well, once again, your social media, as well as uh, the link to the um, national roller coaster museum uh, website is going to be in this description of the both podcast app as well as the youtube video uh i'm particularly intrigued by the 3d printed Schwarzkopf logo that sounds pretty awesome actually <laughs> so um yeah so don do you have any final words of wisdom chris we appreciate you joining us tonight and uh you know we look forward to, to hearing more about the museum in the in the months and years ahead certainly and thank you all for giving us the opportunity to to share all the cool things happening and can't wait to see you out there. Awesome. Real soon. Thank you so much, Chris. All right. Well, everybody, we'll see you next week. It's Chris Roberry with the National Roller Coaster Museum and Archives. Good night, everybody.